Let me ask you to turn to Nahum chapter 1. Nahum chapter 1, towards the end of the Old Testament. Several weeks ago I mentioned that one of the things that becomes apparent as you study through the Old Testament is that there are two tracks running side by side. That is, the track of God's wrath and God's love. And they seem to 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 work almost in two different arenas in many cases, that God is wrathful, that He will judge people for uh, for going up against Him, and, and He will love His people. And so we have these two tracks going through the Old Testament, and they don't seem very clear how they work together at all until we get to the New Testament and we look at the cross. And that's where both of those tracks come together in one and they meet. God's wrath is satisfied God's judgment is satisfied in pouring out His wrath upon His Son at the cross. And and when He does so, He shows His love on His people. This God that we serve is an avenging God. He will judge the sinner and at the same time, He is loving and that He will show mercy to, to those whom He has chosen to show mercy like we saw in Hosea. Those tracks run side by side until they meet at the cross and and God pours out His love lavishly upon us through Jesus Christ by crushing His Son. Now those two themes, God's wrath and God's love, or or we could say His forbearance, are seen again here in Nahum chapter 1. In verses 2 and 3, they're seen side by side. And for the Old Testament saint, it was surely hard to reconcile how do these things work together. But certainly on this side of the cross, we can understand how God can be both an avenging God, a a wrathful God, and one who is slow to anger and abounding in love. And a proper understanding of those two truths as they work together in Scripture will help us to love God more, and I would suggest that they will help us to fear God more. So let's read this passage from Nahum. It will begin in verse 1 of chapter 1. The Oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries, and He reserves wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is His way, and clouds are the dust beneath His feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of Him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by His presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the burning of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by Him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows those who take refuge in Him. But with an overflowing flood, He will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue His enemies into darkness. Whatever you devise against the Lord, He will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice. Like tangled thorns and like those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed as stubble completely withered. From you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, 
though they are at full strength, and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. So now, so now I will break his yoke bar from upon you, and I will tear off your shackles. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. Behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feasts, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. Here in chapter 1, we see the destruction of Nineveh declared. And then in chapters 2 and 3, we'll look at next week, we'll see it described, the actual event that's going to take place. In verse 1, we see the prophet Nahum is the author of this prophecy. We don't know a lot about the man, except what we have there in verse 1, that he is an Elkishite. Nahum was written around 650 B.C., so about 85 years after Micah, the book we just finished. And so he was, a, he was following up on the heels of what Micah had prophesied. Remember, Micah spoke to both Israel and Judah and showed them that their need, they needed to repent. Remember, they were looking for God to be pleased in them in their formal sorts of worship. And God said, listen, I don't want your rituals. I have told you what is good. It is to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with me, to walk uprightly. And a few years after Micah's prophecy, Israel had fallen. The northern kingdom had now fallen. Assyria had come in and taken Israel captive. Many of them were destroyed, but, but, but a few were saved and they were taken captive into Assyria. And so imagine what it would be like to be in Judah's shoes. Okay, Judah's on the southern end of, of Israel. It uh, still has Jerusalem as its stronghold. And, and they have watched with their very eyes what has happened. For years, the, the prophets had come in, come in and prophesied it would be like us against the sin of North America. And finally, judgment comes down on Canada and Mexico, and we see these people led off into captivity. And we're left wondering here in the United States, who's in charge? Who is in charge of this whole thing? Did God not see this wicked nation, Afghanistan, come in and attack Canada and Mexico? I mean, is He in charge? Does He know what's going on? Is He really in control? This is what Judah's thinking. They've got their neighbors to the north has now been taken by a wicked country. How could they be used by God? I mean, they're wicked. Of all people, they ought to be destroyed. And so Nahum, Nahum comes on the scene in Judah and helps them to see who is in charge. It's not them. It's not the people of Judah. It's not their enemies, Assyria, Babylon, Nineveh. It's God. God will judge His enemies and, and uh, will, will avenge those who have gone against Him and His people. Notice, against, notice in verse 1 against whom this oracle is declared. It says the oracle of Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of the, the most powerful nation in the world at that time, Assyria. But we must understand that Nahum is not... Uh, excluding Judah. 
he realized that that he he's not saying, "Listen, Judah, you're you're completely right in everything that you do. You have no sin. Don't worry about it. You're going to be taken care of." No, he recognized that Micah had just come and and prophesied to them and shown them their sin and that they needed to repent. But now they they have this sense of who's in charge. And so they need some hope. And so this is what Nahum comes to do. Instead of uh, piling on them with with more pleas for them to repent, instead he says, listen, God is still in control and and you don't have to worry about what your enemies will do to you. And so what we have in this book is is primarily uh, it is filled with judgment against Nineveh, their enemy. Nahum is is concerned mostly with God's equity, God's justice, that he is not arbitrary in the way that he treats people. His purpose, Nahum's purpose, is to encourage God's people in the midst of their overwhelmingly invincible enemy. They've seen these guys come and attack Israel, and now they're fearful for their own lives, and so their only hope was to turn to God for His power. So in verses 2 through 10, we have a hymn to a sovereign God. Nahum gives us a hymn to a sovereign God. Let's read verse 2. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversary and He reserves wrath for His enemies. You see the word that's repeated in several different forms there? Avenging God. The Lord is avenging. The Lord takes vengeance. The idea here is that God will punish the wicked and avenge His own people. So he's saying, Judah, don't fear. God will avenge you someday. He has not forgotten you. And then in verses 3-6, through he shows, although, the long, although He is long-suffering, although God is long-suffering, and it seems like He forbears for sometimes too long, He will eventually defeat His enemies. Notice verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. This is not something that was on the forefront of Judah's mind at this point. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. How could this God be great in power when He's left us, He's hung us out to dry? But, but, but really, the, the thought that could come up in Judah's head is, well, He's slow to anger. Maybe He's slow to anger with them too. Maybe He's not going to punish them like they deserve. But... Notice this, the next part of the verse, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and, or we could say, but the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Okay, so what we have here are these two tracks again. We have this jealous, avenging, wrathful God over here, and we have another track of this God who is slow to anger and abounding in love. And so how can a jealous, avenging God also be a God who's slow to anger. How can He be both? Well, if you think about Nineveh and their history, a hundred years earlier, Jonah had come, remember? And he had preached to Nineveh and said, if you do not repent, your city is going to be destroyed. It's going to be wiped out completely. you got 40 days. And they did repent. And what did God do? He spared them. Because God was slow to anger with them. But He would not leave them unpunished finally because they would turn back to their false gods. The next generation of Ninevites would turn back to false gods 
And so although he is patient, he will eventually punish the wicked. You see where this can be a problem in our thinking. We sit here in a world where we don't feel like we belong, and we shouldn't. And we think, is God really going to punish the wicked? Is God really going to destroy Satan and sin forever? Because it doesn't feel like it. It feels like at every turn, Satan and sin and and evil people are winning and they're rising up. Where's God in all this? But we have to understand that God is slow to anger. He carries out His long-suffering nature on these people for long periods of time until finally, when they have finally rejected Him, He destroys them. And aren't you thankful that God is slow to anger and abounding in love? Because if He were not, then we would not be here. We would not even have an opportunity to respond to His grace because He would have immediately consumed us because of our sin. So the Lord is slow to anger. And Nahum tells in the second part of the verse, that he can use the storm for his vehicle of judgment. Second part of verse 3, In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. So he can use the elements of nature to to be his vehicle of judgment. Verse 4, He can dry up the most fertile of lands. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms blossoms of Lebanon wither. These places were known for their fertility, vineyards, trees, and so on. But they were no match for for the Lord's power. He had control over them. And He could wither them up any time He wanted and and cause great devastation among these people. And so verse 5, when God appears in great splendor, all of nature fears Him. Notice, mountains quake because of Him and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by His presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. No one can stand up against God's wrath, not even the mountains. Verse 6 gives us some rhetorical questions that talk about God's strength. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the burning of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by Him. The idea here is that in verse 5, if the mountains quake at the presence of God, and they are much stronger than we are, they can hold up under much stronger pressure than we can, then then how much more should we quake at His judgment, at His coming judgment? Can we stand against His judgment? So so in verses 1-6, through we're starting to see Nahum's point. And that is that things are not spiraling out of control. Okay, He, He starts at the very beginning and says, listen, God is in control. He can do what He pleases. He can bring down His judgment whatever He wants. Okay, so, so maybe we agree with that point. God is in control. But if He is, the natural question that we have is, then why do the wicked go unpunished? If God is such a great God and powerful God, what's going on here with Israel, our neighbor to the north? What's going on with, with our future? What's going to happen here? How will we survive? Verses 7-10, through Although loving... God will destroy those who plot against Him. Although loving because He is forbearing, He will destroy those who plot against Him. See in verse 7 that the Lord is good. It says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows those who take refuge in Him. 
And then verse 8, He destroys His people's enemies, but with an overflowing flood He will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue His enemies into darkness. Don't fear, Judah. Okay, I'm still in control and I will take care of your enemies in my timing, but give me time. God not only, only punishes, verse 9, He also saves. Whatever you devise against the Lord, He will make a complete end of it. And then notice the salvation that He promises. Distress will not rise up twice. That is, okay, Judah, there might be some problems in your future. Okay, you will be led into captivity because of your sin, but distress will not rise up twice. You don't have to worry about Assyria finally overtaking you. Assyria, verse 10, will not stand a chance against Me, God is saying. Verse 10, like tangled thorns and like those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed as stubble completely withered. Assyria would not be able to stand against God. It would be as if they were a drunk person walking around with a thorn in their hand. How could they keep from cutting themselves with that thorn? They could not. In the same way, Assyria cannot keep from God's judgment, God's wrath upon them. And so in verses 11 through 15, we have the result of God's dealing with His people and His enemies. We have in verse 11, a wicked counselor. From you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord. A wicked counselor. This is probably Sennacherib who invaded Judah in 701 B.C. And when I, and Isaiah speaks of this same king. But... Although Judah would be would be shaken, although Judah would would be would be destroyed in in some way, there would be vindication. They they would finally be avenged in verses twelve through fourteen. Notice verse twelve. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength, and likewise many, that is your enemy, even so they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. Then in verse 13, the yoke of Assyria's unjust rule um, will be broken one day. So now I will break his yoke bar from upon you and I will tear off your shackles. It's as if they are oxen and they have the yoke upon their necks and from Assyria, from, from them uh, oppressing them. And God says, don't worry. Okay, you're, you are going to go into captivity. It's going to be oppressing. But I'm going to break that yoke bar. And I'm going to relieve you of that, that burden that you have. And as a result, I will destroy Assyria's king and their idols. Verse 14. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. Assyria was going to be destroyed with all of its people and all of its idols. And so this was great reason for joy. Verse 15. Behold on the mountains the feet of Him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feasts, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. There's coming a day for Israel, for Judah, when they would be delivered from Assyria and, and the threat that, that was, was theirs. But this verse is not 
found only here in the Scriptures. In fact, it's also found in Isaiah and in Romans chapter 10. Let me have you turn there. Romans chapter 10, because Paul uses it to refer to, refer to the joy that comes to believers. When they are freed from the power of sin through the Gospel. When believers are freed from the power of sin, there is great joy. Romans chapter 10, let's begin with verse 14. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. You see, there is great news that we receive when when someone brings to us the message of the Gospel. And just like for Judah, they would receive this great blessing, this great news that was coming that they would be freed from from the tyranny of Assyria, we have that same great news, but, but actually it's, it's better. We have an even better news, and that is that Jesus Christ has, came, has come to free us from the power of sin. And so Nahum uses it to remind Judah that, that listen, this is what chapter 1 is about. You're not in control. The enemies are not in control. God is in control. And, and next week we'll see that, that God's enemies certainly are not in control because God's going to show us through Nahum what their destiny is. And as opposed to what they were thinking, God was in control. So Judah must have been concerned. Perhaps they, they watched as Israel was led away in shackles. They, they watched these brothers of theirs, people who, perhaps who they had done business with or, or whatever, and they, they watched them being led away in shackles. And they must have thought, how can we ever survive against a superior power like, like Nineveh, like Assyria? It seemed as if things are, are spiral, spiraling out of control. Now, I don't know what, what, what's going on in your life right now exactly. Maybe things are going pretty well. But do you have dreams to live in a perfect world here? Where, where you say the right things. Where you know the right people. Where, where you have the right health and the right appearance. But if you're playing with such delusions, let me bring you some unwelcome news. That, that world that you are in charge of does not exist. And it will never exist. You see, our society tells us, just think positively and good things will happen. But, but tell that to, to, uh, to Daniel. Or, or tell that to, to Paul, who, who was shipwrecked multiple times. I mean, he, he was thinking positively. He was thinking even gospel thoughts. And yet he had all of these, what we would call from our perspective, bad things happen to him. And our society tells us if we think positively, good things will happen, but that statement contains the hiss of the serpent. And if you're honest with yourself, you would agree with that. Nahum here recognized that God's people, 
especially God's people, will have a hard time in this world. And if you're a Christian, you may be thinking, but I'm a child of the King. Okay, I, I deserve better than that. I should get better than, that, than, than what I, I'm getting right now. And you know you are a child of the King. But you're living in a world that hates Him, that has rejected Him, that, that hates His authority and will not submit themselves to it because they do not accept His rule. If you're really a child of the King, then what you should expect is not good things to come, but hard things to come. There will be difficult times, so you can be sure of that. Think of Jesus Christ. I mean, of all people who thought good thoughts, how, how could those things possibly be called good? From a human perspective. Turn over to Luke chapter 20, and I'll show you what our expectation should be with, with regard to the world that we live in. Because here's, here's what Judah was thinking. If God is in control, then my life should be better than it is. And my enemies should not be overpowering my neighbors or us. If God is in control, that's what should happen. But what the Scriptures teach us is that if God is in control and we are submitted to God, then tough things will happen on this earth. Look at Luke chapter 20, verse 9. And he, Jesus, began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave. And they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third. And this one also they wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. When they heard it, they said, May it never be. But Jesus looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. You recognize the point of this parable. That God is the vineyard owner and He had sent several people to these servants and expecting them to respond rightly to these servants and yet they rejected them. They beat them and sent them away empty-handed. And He says, you know what? I'm going to send My Son. Perhaps they will treat Him well. But instead, these people... Recognize, okay, the people of this earth, when they recognize that Jesus Christ is in their midst, the Son of God, God Himself, they say, We will treat Him harmfully because this is the heir, and if we take His inheritance, we will have it all for ourselves. And so they threw Him out and they killed Him, and God says, Do you know what? You, you talk about control. What do you think I'm going to do to those people who have rejected my Son? 
I will take care of that. Don't worry about that. What you need to understand as a believer is this. You will receive opposition as a, a believer in Jesus Christ. You will receive opposition. And if you don't, perhaps you are not standing up for Christ as you should. Now, when I say opposition, I'm not saying that, that somebody's uh, um, doing damage to your house or vehicle, um, that, that they are beating up your children. Whatever. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is some sort of opposition. That could be some sort of verbal persecution. Maybe snubbing their nose at you or not inviting you to certain things or, or whatever it is. It could be physical abuse because of your, your, uh, your stance for Christ. And that may be coming in our country. But the point is, is that we should receive op- opposition. We should not be looking for it. I'm not suggesting we go out and stand on the street corners or force our way into people's houses until they call the cops. What I'm saying is that as a, a servant of the vineyard owner, we should not be surprised when we are rejected by the people of this world. We should not be surprised because they even rejected not just the servants before Jesus Christ, but they also rejected His Son. And so what we need to see here is that the world is not spiraling out of control. You see, God is raising up some while He's tearing others down. And based on our hope in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we can be sure that God will make right all things and He will make them beautiful in His time. And our, not, our job is not to move God aside and say, I'll take the wheel. Okay? You don't seem to be getting it. These people are winning and they should not be. They're evil. Our job is not to take the wheel from God, but rather it is to obey Him and to trust Him. That is, we are to respond to Him in a way that says, God, You know what is best. You are in control, just like You were in control of Judah. And You will do what is best for Your purposes. And my obligation is simply to obey what You've told me to do and to trust that You know what is best. Now that is certainly easier said than done. But it is a message that we all must understand and respond to rightly if we're going to be wise servants of our Master in this uh, world that hates Him and His Son. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father, we are so thankful that Jesus Christ was willing to give Himself for us. That He was willing to be ridiculed and scorned and beaten up and, and killed for our sake. He took upon Himself Your wrath. The avenging God that You are, the wrathful God, instead of it being poured out like us and consuming us, You devised this wonderful plan to pour out Your wrath on Your Son so that Your justice could be satisfied. So that Your wrath would be completely satisfied. And in it, we see Your greatest act of love. And so we constantly look back to the cross as a hope of what is to come, as a means by which we trust in You now, and a means by which we obey Your Word. We we continually look back to that cross. 
And we are so thankful that, that You have called us out of darkness and into Your wonderful light, out of the power of Satan and into the power under the power of Your Son. But we admit that, that there are times when we feel as if the world is spiraling out of control and that it seems like there, there is nobody at the wheel. And we don't uh, voice our thoughts that way, but when we look at our nation and some of the things that are going on in politics, we, we take the sentiment of our society, of our uh, conservative uh, friends and so on, and, and we say, well, perhaps we need a better president in order for things to go better. But we understand that you have even, even the president that we have now is under your control. Each person in, in each position of government authority is there because you placed them there. You did not take your hand off the wheel for a moment and someone slipped in and, without you knowing. And then now you're trying to, to cover things up to make them right. We understand that this was all a part of your plan. And so we pray that You'd help us to submit to our leaders, to submit to our government, to recognize that, that they are in control and that, that, that ultimately they are in control because You've given them that control. Who, who can have power apart from the power that is given from You? And so, Lord, we, we confess that, that we have thought wrongly about our country and about who's in control. And we also confess that we have not trusted You to know what is best for our lives and for our good. And we tried to make things better in our lives only to find that there is only satisfaction in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And then putting all on the altar by completely trusting and obeying. And we ask that You would help us to... to be strengthened in our faith and to grow in our, our trust and in our love for You. And may You take us from this place and use us as vessels that are fit for Your use to accomplish Your purpose in this world and in the kingdom which is to come. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.